Hello, everyone. I'm Isaiah Sullivan, and I'm very excited to be sharing my podcast, St. Small Talk, with all you listeners. On this podcast, I'll be having great conversations on a variety of subjects. My guest today is Ryan O'Connor, the Ramsey County Manager in Minnesota. Today, we'll be talking about all things Ramsey County and St. Paul on this episode of St. Small Talk. Well, thank you for coming on, Ryan. It's great to be here. In studio today is Ryan O'Connor, the Ramsey County Manager, and as always, the producer of this podcast, Marshall Saunders. How's it going? Pretty good, Marshall. How are you? I'm very glad to be here on the inaugural episode. The inaugural very episode. Very exciting. Very exciting thing. Working out the kinks, as Ryan got to know pretty quick here. We don't have to tell our secrets. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no that, that will get edited out for sure. I got to know you a little bit, actually, through my through my uh, employment at Thomas Liquors. Ryan, our, our meet, you want to tell our meet cute now of how I came cute. in looking for a nice six-pack of IPA, and exactly. somehow that led to a whole thing, huh? Well, you were wearing your Ramsey County, uh, I think probably that I'm, exact vest. I'm wearing, I am wearing the shirt from the meet cute right now. Yeah, I didn't I even is, realize this it. Is, this, yeah. is, this is kind of seren- <laughs> this is serendipitous, really. Um, but you came in wearing the Ramsey County, and I was just this punk cashier pointing out, I mean, this is pre-COVID, which yeah. is, oh, God, those were the days. And I'm like, God, who's this guy? I've never, like, I know Ramsey County. He's wearing the, I've never seen that kind of a badge before. And I, I think I pointed it out to you. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. And you're like, yeah, I work at Ramsey County. You go, oh, what, a commissioner or something? You're like, no, I'm in charge of the commissioners. And I'm like, oh, so you're the Ramsey County manager. That was pretty good. I can even make it a little bit better because it stands out to me in that nobody, like, the most common thing, right, is people ask you what you do and you say, oh, we're for Ramsey County. People kind of go, oh, okay. And then they move on yeah. to their story again because <laughs> right. they're like, that's boring already. <laughs> and what what happened was you caught the you caught the logo and oh, yeah. you said you work for Ramsey County and I said yes and you said what area which is already interesting right like yeah. who is the person now who knows that we have multiple areas right. and I said I work uh, I work in administration oh do you know a commissioner and you mentioned a couple of the commissioners and yeah. I'm going who is this guy it's like he's got the baseball card set of the county commissioners in his pocket yeah I think I think I was mentioning the aides more so too yeah like, and, uh, and that was the one. Pains yeah, or you know yeah. some of the members. And and I give you credit, you're in the 99th percentile <laughs> of people's knowledge when it comes to what county government in Minnesota looks like. So well, it was fun. Well, yeah, that's right. Let's talk about that. So uh, I kind of the idea on this podcast when I was talking, I was talking with my brother a lot about it. And I was like, okay, so this is my first guest, Ronald Connor. He's the Ramsey County manager. And my brother's first thing was, what the heck is a Ramsey County manager? And I'm like, oh, you know what? Like, that's what the podcast is going to be about. I'm going to talk to Ryan like I'm talking for my brother, like like someone who's ignorant on the subject. Or like my neighbor who still looks at me every day like, I don't know what you really do every day. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And I can't believe you'd want a county manager to be your first guest on your new podcast. But we'll work on that issue. <laughs> oh, who, who, knows, who knows if this is even get aired? This is just <laughs> right. practice. They're starting <laughs> small. Fair point. <laughs> well, Marshall, do you know what a county manager does? Somewhat. I used to work uh, with the city of Bloomington a lot. Okay. So okay. I knew what a city manager was. Was. Sure. And then some of the uh, city council member, this, I mean, I literally worked there in the 80s. And uh, some of them went on to Hennepin County. Got it. I kind of like started to have this slow. Uh, realization of what the county does, and and then you start noticing, oh, that's a county road. That's <laughs> oh, I, I get it. So they they're in charge of that road, and 
That's that's about that's the extent good. of it. So, so yeah. yes. how, how do you describe what I you think, do? First of all, it's interesting in the state of Minnesota and maybe other places in the country too. Co- counties are a part of government like cities and the state. And yet in the metro area, we identify oftentimes by the city in which we grew up. Right? I grew up sure. in Bloomington originally. And so yeah, people so ask, I would say, oh, I, I grew up in Bloomington. And, and then in Bloomington, you have to say, well, are you from East or West Bloomington? I went to Kennedy oh, yes. High School. You have to you finish go it to up. Jefferson. I want yeah. to be clear right out of the yeah. gate. Prestigious, yeah. West, yeah. Bloomington. Prestigious <laughs> West Bloomington. Yeah, I we'll take a couple of shots along the way. You're a Kennedy grad, oh, too? Yeah. Perfect. 88 Kennedy grad. Same time. Maybe we just missed each other in the oh, hallway. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> so, I, am, I am surrounded here. So uh, <laughs> people in the metro identify often with their city. But if you go to any place in the rest of the state of Minnesota, people know their county just as well as their city. And so it's some weird thing about how we identify here that's a little different. But counties do a ton of work in the background in the state of Minnesota. We were created by the state of Minnesota to administer the work of government. The state can't really do it the way they're set up. And so they have local governments do it with the belief that being closer to people is a better way for government to respond to the needs of an area. Human services, sheriff's office, corrections, public health, all sorts of things. When people ask like, oh, so what do you do? I mean, one of the most common things I get is like people ask what you do. You tell them, they say, oh, okay. And then they wait a second. They go, well, but like, what does that actually mean? I always, I, I start with the part of, so people in Ramsey County, um, every resident, right? Citizens have the right to elect seven members to a board. They each represent a district. And those seven members then are asked to oversee the organization as the governing board. And our organization includes right now about a $750 million a year annual budget and 4,000 employees. We're the second largest county in the state behind Hennepin. So that that's tax revenue that you get in, right? That's all the revenue. That's so all it's, the revenue. It's property taxes is about half of it. Some of it's state and federal money that makes up a chunk of it as well, right? But the total number that you'd look at, your bank account each year is about $750 million. And you're talking about the county commissioners, right? That's the Ramsey County budget. Ramsey County. And so those okay. seven board members oversee it. But as elected officials, we have a professional form of government, of management, that was created by a charter. We're the only county in Minnesota where citizens in the 1970s, I think it was in the 70s or it was the late 60s, we could look up the exact date, came together and they crafted a county charter that is like a constitution for Ramsey County. And it says, this county will be governed by a professional form of management. And the elected board has the hiring and firing authority over that individual who then runs the operation day to day. So my job is to carry out, as you said earlier, the role, the the strategy and vision of the county board who is elected by the public and to do that through staffing and budget decisions day to day and in partnership with the elected board. Are, are the, is the elected board, is that a full-time? Full-time. Okay. Ramsey County commissioners are full-time. Okay. Full-time. With a full-time legislative aid. They right. each have, yep, their yeah. offices each have an aide, yep. Yeah. And I know who my county commissioner is. Do you Could know who not my is? name, why? Yeah. Where do, you, where do you live? Highland Park. Okay. Mine's Tony Carter. Okay. Yeah, the mayor's, the mayor's mom. So, oh, Carter's really? mom. Okay. Yeah. 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 Commissioner Raphael Ortega represents Highland yeah. Park. I've seen that name yes. on the lawn yeah. signs, yeah. Yes. Raphael and, and Ken Ioso, the, uh, the, the duo representing Highland Park. There you go. So- how I think when I talk about like the the Ramsey County Commissioner's Office and things like that, how how long is your term? So our board um, board of commissioners members are elected on four year terms, 
And I, uh, my term lasts every Tuesday to Tuesday when they have a board meeting, <laughs> you know, as, as the board that oversees my performance on any Tuesday, if they chose to come in, a majority of members could choose to unseat me from my current job. But now, you serve at the will of the board. You really yeah. do. And they, and they would say they serve at the will of the people. Right. Now in practice, if you have a good relationship with yeah. your board, if your board has a good relationship with the public and you're a well-functioning organization, which historically Ramsey County has traditionally generally been, you don't come to work every Tuesday wondering if it's your final Tuesday up there, right? Yeah. And so um, I, I think... Although a guy like you, it might be in the back of your mind. You, know? <laughs> you might be thinking about it. <laughs> and so it's, um, it is a job where I don't have a specific term. Um, I work in a contractual relationship with the board, and it's uh, something that every two years they re-up that contract or revisit, and it's a great job. I mean, it really is. I get to... It's this mix of getting to engage with people who are directly elected and working their entire lives to serve the community, right? They're from and in the community. They believe in this work to their bones, and they give every hour of their day to this work. And then working with so many staff people across areas from public works and public health and so many other areas in between— like, what does it mean to be an employee of Ramsey County? How do you tell someone who works on the street um, as, a, as a sheriff's deputy or filling a pothole or serving in a public health role or serving in detox? We all work for the same organization. There are very few organizations of our size with this many distinct lines of business. And it's both a challenge, but it's also like if you like leadership and you like management, there is no better opportunity than saying, how do you build a team? Now, so how does a guy like you get started in that role? Because obviously you didn't jump right into being the county manager. You had to have some, some prerequisites. Yeah. Now, I got in trouble once this year. I, earlier I was talking to a group and they asked like they asked this question. I said, well, let me start here. I don't believe anybody who says like when they grew up, they like wanted to be like a county <laughs> administrator. And someone on the call was like, I did. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to revise that. I don't think most people grow up wanting to. I don't think most normal people grow up wanting to be most a, a county official. You know, like it's it's kind of one of those pieces of just progression. And I think um, whenever talking to people about their own career paths, um, I think it's a matter of both circumstance and who you are and passion and opportunity coming together. And the idea that people tell you they have it all mapped out, I tend to not believe those people um, or they post rationalize it later on. So for me, um, my story often starts at I was a senior in high school during 9-11. So now you got the date that yeah. dates that gives you my age exactly. But I wanted to be a sports writer. I love sports. I was a collegiate swimmer and played water polo in college. Swimmer? Yep. What, uh, what stroke? Um, I ended up being an individual medley swimmer in I college. Am, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was 200 free. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't go that far. Well, I always well, got tired about 150 yards into that 200 <laughs> free and it got bad for me. Well, was, I got to ask, what's your best time? Uh, I, well, 50 freestyle was my like high school best event. Yeah. So I was like about a 22 flat in the 50 freestyle. That's impressive. Wow, Back yeah. in the day. I, Cold I, start off the, I mean, most people's best time is when they're doing a relay right. and they get that extra jump and just get a, you know, half a millisecond more. But I would point out it's fast until you hear that, like the current, like uh, yeah. NCAA records, like an 18.9 or something. That dude's like out of the water having a cup of coffee and I'm still coming down the lane. <laughs> so no, that, was, so that, like, was, that was much of my swimming experience, by the way, was, was everybody cheering on the last guy hey, that's coming down. I'll take any claps you want to give me whenever they come. Yeah. So like, I was super into sports and I, I still am, um, but I wanted to be a sports writer. I loved reading the sports page all the time. And like, I just was into it. And then I remember I was in an AP class in the morning when you watch the entire events unfold. And it's a seminal moment to be a senior in high school where like your life is in front of you. But I remember like, it's crazy to look back on. 
we didn't know that day who the Taliban were. That was a brand new introduction into my world. And over the next couple of weeks, you, you come to realize that this relatively prosperous and peaceful and quiet world for the last many number of years, um, it's a bigger world than you might realize. Yeah. And for me, that really changed my trajectory. I was interested in journalism, and I, I still love to write, and I love to read, and great authors. It's amazing. But I ended up going down the road of political science and history in, you go to in college? college. I went to the University of South Dakota. Okay, sure. So, was um, that the uh, Jackrabbits? No, no. Oh, is that, Dude, that's like telling the guy from East Bloomington, is it the Jaguars? No, it's uh, it's the Coyotes, the, the South coyotes. Dakota State Jackrabbits. Is that SDSU? Yes. Okay, okay. Everybody does it. It's like you get a buck every time. <laughs> I mean, you went to school in South Dakota, man. I, I mean, what, what are you expecting? You got two schools to choose from, basically, got, right? And the tail, it always comes up to so um, I, I went to college there, and in my time there, I became less interested in sports and more and more interested in government and politics. Mm. And as a junior in college, I had an opportunity to go to London, and I worked for a member of parliament in the Labor Party. Wow. I no never, kidding. I'd never been out of the country. I'd, I'd never had anything like that. I remember, cool. like, I still remember the day you show up with this. I had the biggest suitcase too. <laughs> like, I think I packed everything in my entire life into the suitcase. And kid, I never used kid from Bloomington, Minnesota, flies out to and London, England. Where were you staying in London? So I, uh, I stayed in an area called St. John's Wood. Was the neighborhood yeah. I lived in. I lived in England for three years growing up. Oh, it's, yeah. it's an awesome place. And I don't the, remember anything. I was I lived there till I was three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the man I worked for, his name was Bob Blizzard. He was an MP from uh, like a very like working class part of the UK. Yeah, la his, labor spelled with a labor with an O U R. And he had been a um, school teacher for much of his career. Hmm. He was the second highest ranking member in the British government to resign his post over the Iraq war vote. Mm -hmm. So he voted against authorizing mm -hmm. force in Iraq. And so when I joined his office, he was a guy with plenty of free time to give because his party wanted nothing to do with him. Wow. And I think it's also really interesting to see now how I think he feels as though history has vindicated vindicated a choice that in the time was really hard. And so it was really a neat experience to go through because it's very constituent focused and it and he had time to give to someone who was interested anyway. And other than trying to teach me cricket, which I still don't understand, <laughs> I picked up a lot. And I came out and just thought like, I love this part of the passion. And I didn't know at the time, is it government or politics or whatever, but it really got me down this road. And anyway, long story, like I spent some time working in Senator Tim Johnson's constituency office, a former South Dakota uh, congressman in the U.S. Senate for a long time. And through that experience learned, I didn't really love the politics as much as I loved like the governing side of the work. And I went to graduate school at Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs, focused on energy policy and environmental policy. I frequently joke that I went to the top rated local government school in the country for local government management and yet never took a local government management course because oh, I had really? no idea that this was an interest. <laughs> and then found good. my way back. Yeah, through that process, I, I met a woman who ended up Growing up five miles from me in Richfield, right, didn't, right. didn't ever know her when I lived here. Wow, you married a Richfield girl. I did. Oh, wow. <laughs> moving, up, moving up in the world. She better, she better have stopped listening by that point. <laughs> and she's in uh, long-term care administration and got offered a job back in this region. And it moved us back here after graduate school. And my first job when I got back here was with the Association of Minnesota Counties. I worked statewide with counties. Is my that the county version of like the League of Minnesota yeah, Cities? Yeah, exactly the okay. same. 
my my timing is was that I got hired a month before Lehman Brothers collapsed, hmm. and oh, so wow. I remember that. So I remember it vividly. October of or September of two thousand eight. And I remember because I went into work that day thinking like, well, I'm the newest person here, so I wonder how this all plays. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I've forgotten that is I was also the cheapest person there. Yeah, so right. they're like, what good does it do to get rid of you? You're not worth very much. <laughs> But I started to work with counties and like everybody else, like your brother, I didn't know anything about counties, right? I, I knew that they did some work, but I learned a ton. And the neat thing about working with a state association like that is I began to have the opportunity to work with elected officials across the state and some of their higher level staff that would participate in association work. And so I started to do transportation policy and energy policy. I did some ag policy work for the counties and I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I had no idea that I didn't know getting into the work how much counties did. I didn't know how much they impact day-to-day -day lives in Minnesota. And through that, I met a number of commissioners and staff that took me on a journey to running the Solid Waste Coordinating Board, a former regional board that governed solid waste policy, and then brought me to Ramsey County in 2013. I was hired as the policy and planning director, nice. reporting directly to the previous county manager. Who is, who is that, by the Julie way? Julie Kleinschmidt. Julie Kleinschmidt. Okay. Julie Kleinschmidt. And How long was she there for? She'd been there for about a decade in that role. She had previously served as the county's chief financial officer and before that worked in Hennepin County as their controller in their budget office. She was a great, you know, great public servant, had spent a long time in government, um, and it was wonderful learning from her. When I came to the county, I loved doing policy work. So I was the policy director. I got to connect the county board's strategic vision and mission and goals to how we try to achieve that. I always think of it as a, it's a big organization like a tanker. How do you keep it oriented in the right direction? You cannot day to day just wrench on the wheel and turn that ship. Mm -hmm. Nor should you, quite yeah. frankly. <laughs> don't, don't, don't try. I come to this with a very strategic bent on the work and how do you form partnerships with all your operating areas to build that team? I worked in that role for about three years and then I became the deputy county manager over the health and wellness area of our organization. Community corrections, social services, public health, financial assistance services, veteran services, about 2,000 employees. And at that point, that's when I realized that I enjoyed the administration side of the work, not only the policy side. Because truly, if you care about policy work and you have any interest and aptitude for management and administration, I believe it's important that you lean into that side to help other people achieve good work as well. So you deal with HR and you deal with legal and you deal with budgets. And um, after having been in that role for a while, my boss announced her retirement. Mm -hmm. She retired in 2018. And I went through a, the process, um, and uh, it was a long process, and the board definitely did all their work and interviewed a lot of candidates. And it's a weird process to go through because the media can sit in the room with you and write stories about it, and you can read <laughs> that night about your job interview. <laughs> you, you think it goes really well, and then you read Jane McClure is saying, Ryan O'Connor shuddered at this question. <laughs> it's just a really interesting thing to go through. You know, it's just it's weird. Most job interviews don't go like that. And I, um, I was really fortunate that the board chose to appoint me to the position and it's, I say this and I don't mean it at all as cheesy, but like, it's been like the honor of my life to get to, to serve the community I live in. I mean, not every, you know, it's really neat to wake up and say, you have some role in helping shape this place. And I look at my little kids, I have a five year old and a three year old. And like, um, I don't want to pretend I have all the answers and I definitely don't do it alone, but I'm glad I get to play a role. That's really neat. You know, I have this experience with whenever I talk to someone like you and, uh, whether it's at the state level, the county level, uh, 
the, the city level or the federal level, you know, you kind of sit on the outside and you sometimes get a jaded idea of government. You know, it's just this amorphic blob <laughs> and they, you know, like, what are they doing for me? And you don't see it day to day. And the closer you get to it, even the elected officials that I know, you know, can sometimes seem kind of crazy and all that sort of stuff. But you get close to the people who work there, the staff and the elected people, and you realize the amount of dedication, the amount of work, the amount that they actually care about what they do and that they go to work every day trying to do the best for the people that they work for, you know, the, the constituents. Does it ever get frustrating how most of the world maybe doesn't have a proper appreciation of that and that has to come into play when you're having meetings and people come in for public comment and they're just, you know, they come immediately combative because they have this impression or they they bring along that kind of stereotype with them. Yeah, that's a great question. And it can get frustrating. I think it's also part of, like in any profession, part of your responsibility is to make the profession better than it was before you, right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of, I think, what we need to carry is part of like our burden and um, what reminds us to come to work. I'll add one actual layer to that too, on top of what you just said. There's both that vision of like politics afar and government afar and what we see on TV. And then there's also the very real examples locally of you can go through this community and there are many people and particularly oftentimes from marginalized communities, people of color, um, more ethnic and cultural communities that would say, I have very clear examples of how government has wronged me or my parents or my grandparents. And when you step back and think about that, it's like that that is a part of this story, too, is that it's both the observation of it and the direct feeling sure. that is the that is a part of the work that can be very difficult and tiring. But like uh, that's what you sign up for um, when I when I meet with new employees every month, we have our new employee orientation and any month we have anywhere from like 40 to 80 new employees across this whole place. Uh, just working for Ramsey County. Working for like, Ramsey like, County. They're you're the, talking the health departments and the uh, yep. human services. They and all, stuff. We oh, all okay. come together as a county at the beginning, and I get to I get to give a welcome every time, and I get to spend some time with those. Is girls. this all done on Zoom right now? Unfortunately, yeah. yes. It used to be a little more fun in real life settings, and um, one of my asks is to always help people remember that government is not a screen in the corner of your television set. It's not some faraway land. It's the person across from you at a counter. It's the person on the other end of the phone. It's the person shaking your hand. And as much as I wish that I could take what I believe to be the good in government and just make it what it is, it is every single person who shows up behind that counter on the other end of the phone, they define what government is. And the responsibility, that's when you realize like you can be a leader, but you're only as effective as everybody else that works with you. I don't know. You get reminded of the good and bad day to day on that. But our goal is to continue to have more good than bad show up, right? Particularly at a time when it can be tough to watch TV. So you do need the long view. But whose long view is it, right, becomes the big question. And so you need to upend the paradigm that you have all the answers. And part of the danger that governments work through, and I'll use public health as the example. It's an interesting time to use public health as yeah. the example yeah, of no COVID. Kidding, right? Public health is founded on this principle that people in a town were getting sick and someone finally realized water can cause you to get sick and said, don't drink the water. It's a very authoritative way that public health became like this thing. 
it's also a really dangerous messianic style story yeah. where everyone says, well, public health must have all the answers. But in reality, they don't. And they've also done things around mass vaccines and the way in which we've hurt communities where you can't simply tell that as your story. So how do you create mechanisms where you invite community to be a part of your planning at every level, high level, long term, short term? Don't make it neighborhood by neighborhood only, but chart a vision together. And that's really like the one of the biggest challenges right now in front of, I think, 21st century local government is to upend the paradigm of either we know or don't know. We know some things and you can get trained professionally and know some things, but so does the woman who's lived down the block for 55 years. Mm -hmm. And she knows a lot too. And we need to make space for her to be a part of that. So how are you doing that right now? Like how, how is Ramsey County incorporating all these different opinions and views and people from different backgrounds into their decision-making process in 2020 COVID-19 pandemic uh, fashion? What's surprising is I think until the pandemic, we would have struggled to imagine a world where we could have been more inclusive or reach more people without the ability to do it in person. But it also breaks through some of the stuff where it can be intimidating to show up in person or you look around the room and you're the only one who looks a certain way. So we've been running all these community town halls, we've called them on a variety of topics, particularly during COVID, but they've addressed homelessness. They've talked about food insecurity. We've talked about um, veteran services, financial assistance. Hundreds of people show up at these forums each time. And like, if you run a traditional, you know, meeting in the basement of a church somewhere, 25 people is a pretty good turnout. You don't get a hundred people to show up and people can share stuff kind of through the chat, which... There can be downsides to that on some meetings, (laughs) but they can also share things on over video and you can record them. We've had like literally more than a thousand people engage in like very serious conversations. We've had more than 600 people engage on homelessness alone at a moment of great crisis. And you're doing some work on that right now, right? A ton of work, like around the clock. Yeah. So right now, I mean, that was the, uh, uh, it's not Bethesda, which Mm -hmm. house, is it Bethesda? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're taking those beds and you're. Are you using the rooms or describe what you're doing there? So Ramsey County, um, as a system, had approximately 400 homeless shelter beds on any given night before COVID. We lost 50% of that capacity immediately when COVID struck because people had to space out and our need grew by about 300. That's a bad math equation. And when people ask, like, what do local governments do? I think one of the most important things to recognize is we do everything we can so somebody a person, a couple, or a family doesn't sleep outside some night. Mm. You know, that's like a, that's one of the biggest things we do. One of um, the basic things, wa- food, water, shelter. Yeah, we're not playing very high up the Maslow hierarchy. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay, because that's what government's here for, right? We've been doing a lot of work throughout this time. So Catholic Charities Higher Ground downtown, that new project. Absolutely. We were, um, the county board made a $1.6 million investment in that, and we're a part of the service delivery model next door. We opened a place called Winter Safe Space down on East Kellogg a few years ago, 75 beds. But none of that's enough in this crisis. We are leasing Mary Hall across the street from Catholic Charities downtown. We have 160 people staying there on a given night right now during yeah, that's COVID. Where we, we normally did, uh, my family did uh, uh, Christmas. We'd cook meals at Mary Hall. Mm-hmm. That's there what we do with all the meal prep. So you know Mary Hall. Oh, yeah. So we're there. Uh, Luther Seminary recently stepped up with Stubb Hall as a site. We're moving 75 individuals into there for the winter that have been staying in hotels. We set up a bunch of hotels. And Bethesda is another 100 beds plus 65 beds for COVID respite, meaning when you're recovering from COVID. 
And then last week, we just announced a deal with the state of Minnesota for $2.4 million. Huge thank you to the state. It's taken a lot of time, but a lot of hard work from leaders across the state. And that's going to let us keep our hotel program. All said, as of January 1st, there was a neat headline I got to read again today that said, we anticipate no one in the East Metro will be sleeping outside this winter. And I can tell you there are very few things that are harder than when you get the phone call at 9 p.m. on a Friday night. This happened a few years ago. We have 14 families sleeping in cars and we don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And like at some level, you can pretend that you know, your job's a big job or a small job, you all become the same. Like, what are you supposed to do at that moment? It's not like you have an answer for that. And the system has failed when you're at that moment. Our goal right now by January is to say we don't have a system where we have 14 families sleeping outside. And I'm really proud of everybody for stepping up. Yeah. So has that been like the one of the larger projects you've been really pushing on this past couple months? Yeah. So the biggest things that COVID have shown are that homelessness and food instability are the two. And I think those can go float by a lot of people day to day. Not everybody notices it, but we've put $13 million into food stability, trying to shore up like food for everybody. That doesn't even count what St. Paul Public Schools has been doing through their meal delivery and all the other work happening. So between homelessness and food alone, like we're going to be 40 to $50 million in this year to shore it up. And that's where that federal cares money that's been talked about, the For federal sure. money that came down. This is what we spent our money on, is on responses around food and emergency shelter and also helping make sure that no one gets evicted because that only makes your housing problem worse. Yeah, I was, uh, I was listening to a podcast about, uh, it was actually New York Times, food shelves right now and how so many have closed because they mostly ran on volunteers and their volunteers have been elderly people who are mm. more at risk mm. for COVID so they can't come in anymore. Sure. And you have these food shelves, especially in New York because it's such an obviously densely populated city that, I mean, people are getting there at 4 a.m. lining up around the block, hundreds of people deep. And it's it's just this immense and uh, crazy time for food shelves because they're so needed right now. And uh, and it's hard to make a food shelf where you need people in there actually grabbing the stuff, you know, socially distanced and COVID friendly. Like what's going on in Ramsey County for that? It's it's a good descriptor of kind of the challenge we face. Here's the positive side, though. There's a neat story that ran maybe a month ago about um, restaurants that have had an opportunity to step up in different ways, particularly serving culturally and ethnic communities. Um, and some of them we've been able to help support through our food and basic needs funding that we were able to put out into the community. We've seen other models develop, right? There are restaurants that have developed new models. There are other nonprofits that have built up. And it's a tough time for all nonprofits and all businesses too. But we've also found some real successes. And the one thing, like when we talk about St. Paul, so the Wall Street Journal was in town like about a month ago, and they interviewed um, a number of people in this region about homelessness. And I was like kind of the last stop. And I actually don't know if they've run an article yet. So on the way out at the end of the interview, we talked, we were down by Mary Hall and we talked about homelessness and the shelter system and what we're trying to do for this winter and where federal money matters and why we need more response. She was from out of town. She's from out East. And I said, what stands out to you? Like after spending the last three days here. And she said, the thing that stands out to me the most is that this is an area that has not lost control over homelessness. Like some of the other places that I've been to, because people here all seem to care. Like they care about trying to build a strong community where people can be supported. But she said, it feels like you're teetering in a way that it's kind of a tricky moment. And I said, that's a fair description. And if you ever spent time in other communities, I also think that's a fair description of where yeah. we sat. 
And I think this winter of being able to at least get to a place where we said no one's going to be asked to sleep outside. Now, what do we do beyond this winter is a question that needs to start like with everybody right now. But I think we should feel good that we still remain a place where we don't just turn our heads the other way and say, like, we're out. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, you look at you see all these stories. And I'm sure she's talking about places like Portland and uh, places like L.A. I mean, these cities where po- homelessness is a huge crisis. And I mean, we have tent cities and tent neighborhoods in this city. And, you know, people are doing their best to alleviate that problem. And then you say alleviating that problem. It sounds like sounds like you're trying to get rid of these people. No, we're trying to find homes for them. It's helping, you know. They have all this this stigma behind tent cities Mm -hmm. and, you know, police breaking them up and shooing people away, and that's a real shame. The goal should be to find the source of the problem, and I'm sure that's what you're doing right now uh, with a lot of work in Ramsey County. I know the city's trying to do it Mm -hmm. and find out why are these people homeless? Why are they buying tents, and why are they not finding places to sleep? We're all on a team. I mean, you Um, mentioned the city. Like, we spend a lot of time— Mm. Um, with the mayor's office and the city, it's just local government back to where we were a little while ago. Local government becomes a shoulder to shoulder or working with your neighbor type type exercise. And that's not to say it's not professional and buttoned down. Nah, like we got some of the smartest people that I get to work with day to day and they're impressive in their own right. But you don't get to like when you work on like federal policy, there's a part where you make policy, but don't have to necessarily feel from your neighbor what that means. Or even execute it, right? Think about yeah. it this way. Like, you know, if you really are paying attention and you don't like what happens, you're going to get a shot the next time I come in for that, uh, you know, case of beer exactly, at the liquor yeah. store. You're going to be able to say, like, what are you doing? Um, my neighbors, you're, you're held accountable by your community. And I think that is the draw to what makes local government powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's just such a personal level to it. You're t- we're talking so much about, like, roles of Ramsey County. Yeah. Like, we uh, – obviously, we have this huge breakthrough with the vaccine. And it's going to be – I mean, it might be months before people really start getting it that are not healthcare workers. Or is, like, Ramsey County going to have a role in how to roll out that vaccine? And, um, yeah, you're nodding like, oh, yeah, this is big on my plate right now. Um, I And part of it is, like, sometimes saying I don't know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we know we're going to have a role. Uh, What that exactly looks like isn't totally clear. Uh We're reading the news kind of with everybody else some days. However, so this is kind of one of those unknown things. Ramsey County runs the largest public health system, local public health system in the state of Minnesota. Oh, really? Because Hennepin and Minneapolis have separate health systems, public health. Ramsey County and St. Paul are a unified public health system. It goes way back. And so we end up – we are the the state's largest. So when MDH, the Minnesota Department of Health, sets policy – they rely upon large public health systems to help them and carry it out. And we're going to be at that table. I would assume Hennepin County is number two then, right? Hennepin would be number two, I okay. would bet. And then probably Minneapolis would be number three. Yeah. And so, um, so yes, we will be a part of the vaccine piece. Now, whether we're involved in distribution, who knows? But um, in ensuring communication into communities, in ensuring we build trust in the process and who gets vaccines, in working to ensure that everybody gets vaccinated – this is where like we have a lot of community educators, community outreach workers in our public health area. And these are individuals across every race and ethnicity in this community, across every geographic area. They give their heart and soul to this work and they they spend time in their communities trying to build trust that, you know, there are communities, there are places you can go and you'd be trusted right away. There are other places where you could go and people would be like, hey, thanks for the info, but like, I ain't trusting you right now. And we all need to realize Maybe that. more of the latter for myself, actually. I mean, <laughs> especially, especially if they already know me. This like, is oh, true. Yeah, no way we're trusting you. So we'll be involved. This. And I'm the vaccine, you know, it's really, 
it's both optimistic and it's a really good moment. It's also going to be a really challenging moment right now yeah. because I think everyone now wants to get optimistic and there's a lot of darkness still ahead here. Yeah. I mean, the overall like thing what we're talking about, especially with COVID related stuff is uh, learning how to do your job in the COVID world and learning like, oh, my job is so much bigger than I thought it was. Right. I mean, Ramsey County is taking on enormous responsibility that are brand new effects from a global pandemic. And you guys are doing the absolute best you can. So like, what's, I was kind of wondering, like, obviously that's your number one focus as a county board right now. And as a, as an entity is dealing with the effects of COVID. What's something right now that you were really passionate about a year ago that you kind of had to sideline a little bit because you have all this responsibility right now. We are in the middle of uh, redoing how w- how government operates. So part of this is, I got to admit, probably the millennial side of me, but it's not only millennials who care about this. We have board members across the age spectrum as well, an experience spectrum, and come from many different ways of thought who are very passionate about this too. So maybe it's not right to frame it as a generational piece, but as a where we sit. Ramsey County has had many of the buildings in which it operates since like the 1970s and 80s. And there's all, like every building has a story behind it, right? Oh, we got this building for a buck at a moment (laughs) when it was going to get condemned and it saved taxpayers a lot of money. And they have, like it's been, they were good decisions at the time. But what we see is a system now where if you want to pay your property taxes, you got one site you can go to. If you need to access financial assistance, there's one site you can go to. If you want to go do this, there's one site, this, that, and the other. For sure. Well, you know, there's a lot of things where like this, this phone I'm holding up at you right now sure feels like it could be a building access point to every one of the things I just mentioned. And why is it that with technology, the way it is, we're not using paper files. Why can you only pay your property taxes at one site? We've been involved in a multi-year piece to how do we redefine what residence first service delivery looks like? And how do we do that from the point you walk in a door, whether it be a virtual door, a phone door, or a physical door, what does that actually look like in this community? And the downer is some of the stuff in that work, like it hasn't stopped, but we had to slow down because as we're looking at buildings and trying to think about property and how we shift, um, you know, like that stuff kind of dried up at the beginning of COVID. You close your doors at the governor's executive order. We've been operating virtually in different ways. Some parts stopped. Here's the one good part that came out of it, though. We had never had an integrated service center. Today, if you walked into the Roseville Library, the Maplewood Library, Ramsey County East, our former human services building, or the Plato building where you can pay your property taxes. Where or you I can voted. vote early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, if you walked into any of those buildings, we now have service navigators, a brand new position created during the COVID environment where we're working with you across all the examples of services I just gave. We said we don't actually have the full like example of how we build the right type of building to make this all happen, but we have some spaces and we have good people and like let's just start because it'll help. So we've started to do some of it, but in some ways we've had to slow down. Yeah. And it's a bummer. You just have to keep moving. So why, uh, why not the political route for you? Why not running for office and and looking at a job and saying, I want to be a state legislator? You know, I'm I'm really not in the business of often saying, like, why not anything? Uh, I, I'm not not that I mean, I'm not I hate the evasive non-answer. Yeah, I'm like, uh. I'm like giving you the evasive <laughs> non-answer and I don't even mean to. You know, the neat thing is, so you're a younger guy who's like ascending in your career. And one of the challenges that comes with, there's exciting moments with that. Like there's a lot in front of you. And the further you go down your career, some of that actually kind of narrows in some ways, right? You become defined by the profession you're in. Like you're not going to go do something as easily that's way out in left field. You could, but most people don't. The, The downside, I think, though, is you also have more angst, right? 
because you don't, there's a lot more unknowns with the opportunity being wider. There's a lot more unknowns about, could it go right? Could it go wrong? How do I do this? Who do I meet? Where do I go? And that part's no fun. I understand that. And I felt that not for a lot of my early career, right? Like I didn't, I never had grown up wanting to be a county manager. The job kind of found me and I found it along the way and then had the good fortune to work with a board that allowed me the opportunity to get to do this. For the first time, like I'm a dad with young kids and my wife works full time and I get to support her and I love the job I do. I don't know what comes next and I'm, I'm not worried about it. Like we'll cross that bridge someday in the future. Right now, like I think it's important that this community has leaders in place in government and in other places too that are like, I'm focused on vaccines, yeah. on COVID, on we got our property tax levy. Uh, the board is slated to approve a 0% increase on the property tax this which year. Which is huge, yeah. yeah. Which meant we had to cut $20 million out of our budget while doing the COVID response. I'm not I, don't a, have, I don't have time to worry about that kind yeah. of question for that reason, you know? I'm not up to date on it. What's St. Paul like right now? Are they- well, We went to I, zero. I, I, yeah, zero. I was going to say, I got, you know, it, they came out, what, uh, like mid-November, yeah. the property tax day? I was waiting for your thank you. Is this from Ramsey <laughs> County? And my, my parents' thank you is in the mail. I'm not paying yeah. any property. Texas right now. But my valuation went up, yeah. you know, a healthy amount, and my actual yearly property taxes went down. I'm actually paying less, even though the house is worth more. I've seen his house. It's huge. That's no, right. I'm kidding. I've never seen yeah. that. <laughs> and it went down a million dollars. Went down a million dollars. <laughs> but uh, it, that was a very pleasant surprise. Yeah. yeah. And there's just because there was a belief, you know, um, as we looked at. So the county manager proposes a budget to the board and the board ultimately has the right to revise it and needs to adopt it. And so even now, when I talk about a zero percent, I always need to allow for the board hasn't adopted a final budget. No. Sure. But sure. we've had enough discussion by this point where it's clear that they're on a path to approval. Was that a yearly budget then? We have a two-year budget. This is the second year, and it's one of the first times we've ever had to amend our second year. We were proposed to have a 4.5% increase this year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to remove that funding cost about $20 million. And we did use some one-time money for the first time. We do not do that normally. But it's in I areas think this where, is the one time where you can use yeah, a one-time we budget. Were, we were joking. <laughs> you know, we were both joking and serious when you say, if you have a rainy day fund, yeah. <laughs> like, and you're not going to use it now. How much does it have yeah, to rain right. before you just like it for a really? So we're using day. some, but um, adding adding additional tax burden this year to people when we are already worried about housing stability just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I totally get it. I mean, I have a brother-in-law who's in real estate and, you know, he's got a, a small real estate company that he's owned for quite a few years. And, and he, I mean, property taxes are on his mind 24-7 because he has a fair amount of buildings. Uh, but one of the things that he's pretty concerned about that I talked with him about is uh, the, the renter protection stuff and yeah. the no eviction stuff. And, you know, my understanding of it, I mean, he's obviously, I'm biased, he's a really good guy. And I know that he never wants most landlords don't want to evict somebody. That's not their goal, from my understanding. And when you make it really, really hard on them to evict someone, you know, you end up with kind of uh, – it, it can negatively affect the building because they're living with people who are either causing destruction or something like that in this time. What, what would be like – I mean, that's a big role of government right now. The, I think Walls had that no eviction order, you know, and, and a lot of landlords are upset about that. What would, what's like the response to that? You know, that, it's a tough one to wade yeah. into because there are multiple sides to it. I think at some point um, you have to weigh what's the most dire. And I think in the governor's action, what you see from my perspective is someone who said homelessness is the most dire concern right now. No. And like any other governmental action or decision, not everyone's going to agree with it. And I um, and there can be good reasons to not always agree. These are not easy decisions. At some point here, though, 
Um, and this is similar to homelessness when we talk about different sites and people who may be for or against locations of different properties we're trying to stand up. I'm always reminded, how do you take the people who are supportive of this action and the people who are against it? And we asked the question at the Capitol this session, though, about like, but why is it we're talking about short-term emergency shelter as the way people have access to a place to sleep? And in the same way, it's here. Why is it that we're at the point where an eviction moratorium is the only solution in front of us? Like, we are thousands and thousands of units in this state short of what we need for people to have a place to sleep. And the market has not kept pace with what we need. And part of that is is because the market is constrained by various regulatory environments that exist and are different across communities. We need to have a big conversation in this community right now about housing and more housing and more affordable housing at all price points Mm. to ensure people have a place. And then your brother doesn't have to, was your brother, your brother-in-law? Brother-in-law. Sorry. Then your brother-in-law doesn't have to get frustrated, you know? Yeah. And that's the other thing. The other side of the coin is like, Sure, uh, there are these new restrictions going on for your role, but at the same time, you're seeing no increase in your property taxes that you otherwise otherwise mm. might have. You right. know, so I mean, they're saving money in the long run. I'll tell him to sit down. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hard, and I and I appreciate everybody who like. Th- I like to read, like I said, I, I'm interested in history and I like to read about history. And there's so many lessons to be learned from a hundred years ago and the flu pandemic and World War One and the rise of authoritarianism to come and the distrust of government. There are so many lessons that we can learn and also so many things we just fail to learn. It is striking how much better the public health system is than a hundred years ago, and yet how human behavior has not changed at all. And no. you can have good information, but when you decide I'm going to go visit grandma today, like that's a life and death choice. And it could be, it could be then or now. And some of this stuff's been with us for a while. You know, I I remember I was, um, I had a job for a month last year, right before COVID at a law firm. We were talking about it, Winthrop and Weinstein. And I was sitting at a meeting or whatever with my bosses right before it kind of got really big. And I'm blanking. I was, I just had just read this article on the 1918 flu pandemic. Right. And it was by, um, the really the really famous author, <laughs> I really narrowed it down there. I think an NPR guy. I'm totally blanking on his name, but a brilliant man. Um, read about. It and I was talking. I was reading it, and I was talking with my boss, and I was telling him, you know, they say this COVID could be the next, you know, Spanish flu. You know, the the idea is that we're going to have it right now in March and fall, and we're going to isolate and kind of tamper it down, and then it's going to go away a little bit in the uh, in the summer, and then by the fall. Boom, we're going to get hit in the winter. And he's like, geez, like, what are you doing? Like, what are they go- that's never going to happen. A week later, I was laid off because the Capitol shut down. Huh. And I remember like, okay, then it, the, the tumbleweed started going. It's mimicking that right. uh, a lot. So your wife's a nurse. Is that what you're saying earlier? No, okay. she's a care center administrator. Care center administrator. I mean, just, so, oh, she, so she's in hospital administration? Is she, uh, uh, administration? No, sorry. So she, she, she's in senior care. Oh, so God. she oversees a campus. So um, even one of the... So she's busy as heck right now, too. And she was actually a part. She was brought in as an industry representative to the state's emergency operations response this year. So we have had a unique view on the COVID response from when all the shutdowns were happening. She was working in the state's emergency operations center. And I was trying to manage the work in Ramsey County with our with our leadership team and the board. Um, and somehow, like, our kids are still the around. The kids are raising and, like, themselves. You yeah. Know, that's what they, they you seem, got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. They seem good. They seem he, can, good. he can open a can of tuna now. He just kind of peels it back <laughs> and gets in there. <laughs> it's It was a wild – you know, it's one of those years where, like, it'll be crazy to look back on, but you don't ever want to repeat it. Yeah, no. And that's true of everybody. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 
people learning so much about themselves and whatnot. I mean, and then you look at the restaurant industry right now and what they're going through is just crazy. And My wife and I think back to we like the last night before the governor's restrictions went into order. Yeah. And it's also before we really even knew the seriousness of COVID the way we now know it, oh, right? Yeah. In terms of, there was so much we You're didn't talking know. back in March. Yep. Yeah. Um, we had had, we had, we have season tickets at Park Square Theater. We've mm -hmm. had them for a number of years. For sure. Sure. So it was a Thursday night and it was our, and all the restrictions have gone in on Fridays, remember. Yeah. Um, we had tickets. It would have been the last time we went and my parents were going to watch our kids. We went over to a restaurant before that, local St. Paul joint, and we were sitting there, and we ended up – we were exhausted. We'd been working around the clock, and we ended up passing on going to the theater. I was like, I'm just tired. I'd rather actually just have another Manhattan. Right here. <laughs> and she agreed, which was great. But while we were sitting there, we had gotten word already about the closures coming because we were having to close down our operations, and, oh, sure. and it wasn't public. And so I didn't know if the restaurant knew. And we're talking to the bartender. And I just, all I wanted to do was say, like, do you know that as of tomorrow, like, you're going to be closed? Yeah. And I couldn't say anything. Yeah. I just viscerally remember that night for two reasons. One, because there was this feeling that the world was going to change and you kind of like knew, but you did still didn't know what was going to happen. And you didn't know if you'd ever get to eat this restaurant again. Like, you don't know what's going to make it through the other side. And I still don't. And like, right. I love barbecue and I want that restaurant to come back. So yeah. what's, uh, <laughs> so what's the, uh. Are you, is Ramsey County having a role in like a uh, retail and business relief right now? The economic factors of We've this? We've put out um, approximately, it's it's around $15 million in direct grants okay. to um, oh, those are small just, businesses. Just grants, not even loans. Not loans. Okay. Um, to small businesses, um, different amounts at different size organizations. And our last $3 million came out right around the time the governor announced the recent four-week closure. Gotcha. So we've been there to help, but clearly the need is bigger than anything we've been able the to do as a single county can do, yeah. Right. Especially because you're dealing with Ramsey County, which to my understanding is the, the most densely populated county in Minnesota. Am yeah, I, I like left out my elevator speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're the 99th largest county by population in the country. Oh, so really? we're one of the hundred largest. simply population. Yeah. Do you like how I measure that? We're, huh. we're the top 100, I yeah, swear. Just, right. <laughs> but when you look at the size of most other counties, they are multiple times larger geographically. So yeah. in this region, we are 2.4 times smaller than any of the other seven county metro region counties. We actually profile more like kind of a big sprawling city with a half a million people than we do as a traditional county. Yeah. See, I would never admit to that, though, because when I tell people where I'm from, I go St. Paul. In St. Paul, St. Paul, I'm not from Woodbury. I'm not from uh, right. Egan. I'm not right. from Mendota. And then I, I make a distinction to make sure St. Small. You know, there's a reason this podcast has a name like that. <laughs> See, and then for those of us who grew up in Bloomington, you'd say, I'm from St. Paul. And we're like, where, where is where that? that? Really? No. Yeah, I mean, that's I didn't tell that in the story earlier, but what, part of the reason when we moved back to the region, I wasn't yeah. really ready to move back. I loved this place, but like Where I, were you I, at I grew the time? up here. Uh, I'd been going to school at Indiana University okay. in Bloomington yeah. and yeah. looking at jobs in Washington, D.C. and Chicago. For then, sure. And then my wife got offered a job back here. Um, but like when we moved back, we moved into the East Metro because like I didn't know it. It felt like a new city. Right. Um, and so we, I mean, <laughs> Woodbury. Yeah, we lived in Woodbury what? for one year and then we moved into St. Paul the following year. And we've been in St. Paul now for a decade. Oh, but yeah. it was solely related to I was like, this is a cool city. And I like don't know anything about it. I mean, I bet I've been to St. Paul three or four times in my entire really? life. Really? Yeah. <laughs> XLN well, you know, Wild fair. Games. I mean, <laughs> the only reason I ever go through Bloomington or Ridgefield is to go to the mall. Yeah, I mean, right. like, and then everything else is just... 
I turn on Killebrew Ave. That's it. That, that's all I'm doing over there. <laughs> the fun part is, though, you know, at this point, like it's it becomes your home and then uh-huh. you identify with it. But it's just it is funny how that strong parochialism in this region that can. Exist. Oh, yeah, no, don't don't oh, yeah. don't make any mistake about it. You're still a transplant in my mind. Uh, yes. you, are, you are not. Uh, a, I mean, you might you might you might run the not county, but you are not. A local. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Ryan. We really appreciate it. Uh, happy to have you. Thanks for being here. And uh, I'm sure people are going to have a much deeper understanding of Ramsey County and uh, county systems after this. It's been great. Thank you. St. Small Talk is brought to you by Minnesota Podcasting Studios, Minnesota's premier podcasting outfit for professional and entertainment podcasts alike. Our logo design is made by Galen Rick at Mighty Fine Design, a Twin Cities-based graphic design company. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for listening.